welcome to another socially distant episode of Grape Culture, the podcast where three women drink alcohol and talk about things and stuff. I'm Sam. I'm Kim. And I'm Alex. (laughs) And welcome to the episode. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the film franchise Pitch Perfect. Uh, I think there are three films at the moment with potentially a fourth on the way. But before we get into talking about that, we've got some wine to discuss. So what have you guys picked for yourselves this week? I have the Finca Finca Las Moras Barrel Select Malbec. Finca who? Purely Finca who? What? What did you do? What was that name again? (laughs) Finca... (laughs) Finca... Las Moras Barrel Select Malbec off of Argentina. The reason I chose this is because I could. It was there. Is it fair to say you picked it because it looked good and you were in the mood for it, much like when you picked Pitch Perfect on Netflix? Yes, I picked it because I wanted something that I was fairly sure I was going to like without a lot of effort. There you go. Much like Pitch Perfect. (laughs) Our Finca Las Moras Barrel Select has aged for six months in French and American oak barrels, which endows the wine with balance, elegance and distinction. This Malbec of an intense red colour displays a good balance between wood and fruit flavours and excellent aromatic complexities, serving temperature between 16 and 18 degrees. That's so specific. So specific. Suitable for vegans and vegetarians. Oh, that's nice. Which I didn't didn't know. So there you go. What about you guys? What did you go for? So my, <laughs> I went to Morrison's and I literally stood in the aisle enough time for the security man to come like <laughs> walking up and down because he obviously thought I was suspicious. <laughs> and I was desperately Good. trying to find a bottle of wine that linked to Pitch Perfect in some way that was obviously vegan friendly. The one I ended up with was so... so Sorso. Sorso, but it's because it's broken up that I got confused in my brain. <laughs> Sorso, and merely because the top bit, it's all broken up into like two letters and it made, it reminded me of like, so la fa me <laughs> do. <laughs> Which is related to music and singing. <laughs> That's somehow more tenuous than mine, which was, this is on the shelf, so I'm going to take it. So a needle-pulling thread. Is that basically what you've gone with? Yeah. And fight me, because honestly, it took so fucking long. It says, to sip, to savour, to spend a moment enjoying the pleasure of taste. So anyway, I'm going to enjoy it because it took so fucking long to choose it. And have pleasure in my tenuous link. (laughs) What about you, Sam? Why well, I actually got one that was slightly more related, but not much. Not by much. And I have the I have the whistling duck. I don't think this is vegan. It doesn't say it is, but um, I could be wrong. But yeah, 2018 Shiraz um, off of Australia. Uh, they have a Merlot. Much like sh- Fat Amy. Much like mm. Fat Amy. Yeah, even yeah, Fat Amy the whistling duck. So yeah, I got this from uh, Independent Spirit. And this is one of their cheapest wines. And I have been warned about their cheap wines. <laughs> so oh. I don't know how this is going to go. And also it's a red and that's not usually my, my go-to. But the tasting notes say, The spectacular plumed whistling duck frequents the watercourses of, camp- of country Australia 
of country Australia. That sounds weird. And is the inspiration for this wine. This medium bodied style of Shiraz displays upfront aromatics of raspberry preserve and plum with hints of pepper spice and vanilla aiding in the wine's aromatic complexity. They've missed an apostrophe on wines. Uh, the oh, palette... <laughs> don't trust it. Don't trust it. I can't. I can't be having that. Get me my red pen. The palette is soft, supple and juicy, uh, presenting fresh, ripe red raspberry flavours with an underlying soft and silky tannic carry. Fucking hell. For for nine quid wine, they've gone in on this. A perfect accompaniment with any beef or venison dishes or tapas. Well, I just had a shepherd's pie. So (laughs) none of those things. That will have to do. Bloom is a fun word. I think, I think. Or, and they do have a white version somewhere as well, but they okay. have a Chardonnay. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. 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 Guys, this wine is not nice in any way, shape, <laughs> or form. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy it. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I am not. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Alex. Oh. Could it be improved with ice and soda? Could it improve by not drinking it? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> this is chewy. This is like it's it's so citrusy that it's like like toilet bleach. <laughs> like it tastes like I'm drinking that like sounds wow ci- citrus bleach. <laughs> no, <laughs> oh god, lemon pledge. Yeah, like literally, it's like lemon pledge. More lemon pledge. Lemon pledge, but not in my stomach or my throat or mouth. Who needs a colonic when you can drink that? What? How's yours, Kim? Yeah, it's fine. It's it's Malbec. I've had it before. I'm pretty sure it's a very it's a really nice Malbec. Like it's quite an easy drinking one. Um, it's not overpowering like some of the lower priced Shirazes or Malbecs, where it's so vanilla in your face, or or like oaky or clovey or whatever in your face that you feel like overwhelmed. But it's not. It's not bland either. Like it's definitely got a taste, so it's it's quite a good. I think that this normally retails at around seven to nine pounds, um, and it's seventy nine pounds. Seven to nine. Yeah, well, can you imagine? Like, just a good sort of bottom <laughs> bottom end of the uh, Barden just, basement wine. Just a Wednesday night. Pounds. Just a Wednesday yeah. night. Gosh. Um, but yeah so uh i am enjoying it so far so good we'll see how this continues how's yours besides chewy chewy and quite sharp those two things don't go together no i know but it's like that's not pleasant it's not the most enjoyable feel on mouth feel as they say it's it's not what i want in the red but i'm sure after another glass i won't care (laughs) i'm hoping that's what happens with mine Fingers crossed. So we're all off to a, a shaky start on the wine. Kim probably on the most <laughs> solid footing there. But what about Pitch Perfect? So we've all seen, I think we've all seen all three films. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and the first one came out, I think, in 2012. Uh, and then been the subsequent ones have been released over time. I'm not going to ask what, what, like whether you liked it or not because I think that's going to be a very short conversation. <laughs> I'd yeah. be more interested to know why you chose to start watching them. Like, what went through your head when you saw that film come out and you were like, hmm, yeah, that's the one. Or was it a case of, it's 9pm, I don't know what to watch on TV, this is on Netflix, bang it on. Oh no, I wanted to watch it. 
like I I chose to watch it because I like singing and musicals and films about ladies doing singing and musicals. <laughs> like lady film. Lady film. But yeah, like I mean it came out at a time where it felt like there wasn't a, a huge history of like purely female led films. And I know that there is and there is a long history of that, but like it definitely was at a time where that was it was quite exciting to see something that was so fundamentally female but in a positive not not dithery kind of way like it was it was telling a different story or it felt like it was telling a different story because it was about skills and and all sorts of things but basically it all comes down to i really like singing that's why <laughs> i wanted to watch it but you guys i'm really struggling to remember when i first watched it i'm assuming i was hungover <laughs> Um, that seems it, a fair assumption. Yeah, it seems like the kind of film that you would put on with a hangover as well and then thoroughly enjoy it and then rewatch it. I have rewatched it over and over again. When you first said that, I thought, oh, probably the cast, but I don't think all of them were known before then, were they? I don't think so, no. I don't I mean, I think that not all of them. Not all of them. And I think that even the ones that we know now, like the, the names that you think of, like Anna Kendrick or Rebel Wilson or Britney Snow, they were still relative unknowns at the time. Like, mm-hmm. of all of them, probably Britney Snow was the best known. Like, she'd been in the most sort of films that we would have been likely to see. She was in Hairspray and she was in John Tucker Must Die. Classic. Which one uh, is Britney? Who is Britney Stone? The, gin- the ginger one. The ginger one. Oh God, I didn't recognize. I didn't know her actually. Yeah. I don't think. And I think I think she might have been part of my wanting to watch it because I liked her from Hairspray. But yeah, the cast weren't particularly well known. This would have been. This was a bit of a breakout for them all. I mean, differently. Anna Kendrick was well known and well respected, but. I think in terms of popular popularity and widespread fame, this was probably one of her bigger, bigger roles. I think, um, when was... Have you got IMDb open? Because your page, your screen's just changed. I was just about to, I was just about to Google when Bridesmaids came out. That was around, yeah, there were similar times, weren't they? Because I remember. Yeah, so I imagine, like you were saying, Kim, it was kind of that kind of time like the rise of the like all female cast or at least yeah. the kind of like you know main uh, protagonists so um i imagine that's what also led me to watch it but yeah bright was 2011 yeah. what about you Samantha? uh well like kim i like camp singing things um i like i was thinking about it the fact that this followed not only bridesmaids but glee um glee? yeah of course <laughs> And sorry, <laughs> and I was thinking about obviously there was the huge rise in popularity of singing-based entertainment that goes beyond just listening to music. So you know the whole of the noughties, you had the build-up with stuff like Pop Idol, and then X Factor, and then The Voice, and then all those kind of reality shows. But then yeah, you had Glee, and then you had. Oh, but there's always been musicals in you know in movies and stuff. But I feel like there was bigger shift towards like acapella kind of stuff and glee clubs and choirs in those times so yeah anyway and, and musicals in general i think like with les mis and stuff like that all coming out like and moulin rouge like became really big and i mean i'm probably all lumping them into a, like an era that is vast but like much more than what i remember as a child 
like film musicals are a lot bigger now I think I think film musicals have always been big I think it's the way they've been positioned though like the way they've been marketed has changed like yeah they've always been popular but they've not always been mainstream in the same way that they are or even young I think young might be the point that I'm trying to make like not even just mainstream but like Pitch Perfect and Hairspray being made for film they were marketed at teenagers and 20 somethings like not it wasn't just like this is something that it's not supposed to be family friendly. It was it was there were specific angles that were appealing to a different generation than traditionally would have been interested in. Basically, they were they were targeting the theatre kids, but like in a way that they hadn't done before. Yeah. And I think there was a bit of a shift away in the 90s, I think, from from musical based films other than stuff like Disney or DreamWorks, whatever, because they they had a bit of a cheesy reputation. Like if I think if you said something about musicals to someone in the nineties, they would have been like, Oh, cats, Andrew Lloyd Webber, like all that kind of thing. Or Joseph. Or Joseph. <laughs> Which is, you know, really cool for teenage girls. But yeah, I think there was a, a shift in, in that kind of marketing. And I also think there was a shift in like the way female driven stories are told, particularly in a comedy way, because this and Bridesmaids, as two examples of that came out around the same time do share some similarities in terms of comedic style. It's a lot more satirical. It's a lot more... Um, irreverent. Irreverent. And a bit bit smarter than what we're used to seeing. Like, you know, much as I... Not that I'm saying that Clueless doesn't have its moments, but you compare the comedy in Clueless to the comedy in Pitch Perfect, and they're quite different. And I, think I, don't, know if, I don't know if I agree necessarily about Clueless, but that's because I have a whole... I have literally written, like, parts of theses about clueless but um parts of, I, I, <laughs> parts of theses just, you know how i love theses um, <laughs> i love how we're like saying you know clever comedy and then we're laughing at feces <laughs> the- theses okay. my master's okay. thesis sorry sorry yes anyway but i you know your point stands that it definitely is up until around this time most female driven or female marketed films were quote unquote simple quote unquote sappy and like the humor was not as clever and as not as satirical and not as witty if you, uh, mean girls is is maybe an example as well like we've talked about mean girls being a satire but i do think that the humor there is quite different to to this in a way it just feels a little bit more grown up it and it i think it's because it goes from high school to college like that's part of it it's a dynamic change that emphasizes this uh, humor and intelligence change that you're talking about. Just, uh, just something that just occurred to me, like you said about the sappiness of, of how people saw, and probably some people probably still do see female-led stories. The rom-com, like, is traditionally marketed at women, but rom-coms tend to use the word comedy in the way that, like that is used to refer to Shakespeare, where someone at the end gets married or, you know, yeah. there's a happy ending rather than ah ha 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 ha, laugh a minute, jokes, jokes, yeah. jokes. Whereas this was, I mean, it's not, romance isn't the, the main premise of this anyway. It's very much meant to be a comedy. But I think that's the point is that rom-coms, although they still exist and they're still out there, there was more actual comedy being marketed at women. Talking about other films that probably were made with a similar audience in mind and have that comedy and romance tag attached to them more so the comedy i think there were two other films that i could think of that had a similar kind of setup which is women between 
16 to 25, competing in some sort of competition with, well, not just with other women, but um, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. I can see you. Yeah, just a little routine. A little routine. But yeah, so basically, the other two that I could think of, one is more similar, one is a bit, and you'll see why this is the stupidest phrasing, but left field, um, is um, bring it on and bend it like Beckham are the only two that I could think of. Can you guys think of any more? And how do you think this measures up to those? Because I think, yes, Bring It On was very popular at the time and is still popular with people like us. But I think Pitch Perfect was a bigger commercial success and had a bigger audience than those other two. I think it was different eras as well, though. Like, you know, Bend It Like Beckham was, what, noughties? And... Bring It On was similar, similar, similar late era. 90, it was 2000, I'm pretty sure it was made. Yeah, like like 90, yeah, late 90s, early noughties. And so I suppose with the rise of all female-led kind of narrative, maybe that's why Pitch Perfect, and, and being shown as quite well-rounded, taking the piss out of each other or, or allowing an audience to laugh at them. Whereas I don't think that necessarily was present in Bring It On and Bend It Like Beckham, it was still these are women and, yes, they've got their own kind of narrative and story, but they didn't take the piss out of themselves. Whereas I feel like maybe it's a more modern thing to allow an audience to see women in all their flaws and all their different angles and, like, well-rounded human beings. It's that word you said, Kim, irreverent. I think that's mm. the, the what kind of... That's the Netflix it. term. Um, <laughs> if I've seen Bend It Like Beckham... I don't remember very much about it. But the impression that I always got about Bendit like Beckham was it was a little bit more serious and less vapid, I guess, than maybe Bring It On. And like, I stand Bring It On. I love Bring It On. But Bring It On, again, it it, it leans into that teen childish element. Like it was made by adults for teenagers on what they think teenagers talk like, sound like and do. Mm. Whereas... Pitch Perfect is about young, is about new adults who have to actually fend for themselves and make real world decisions and have responsibilities in a way that teen comedies don't. Like, I think that they are very slightly different genre. And I think the idea about a teen comedy, and yes, it was the 2000s and there's all this horrible stuff about them trying to make, like, get the lingo down, which makes me cringe every fucking time I watch it. But, like, pitch perfect feels irreverent. Irreverent feels like the smart word. Like, irreverent feels like the the thoughtful way of saying, I'm, we, you know, we will, we will not take everything seriously and we will not treat ourselves like China dolls. And then there's the kind of, like, super bad version of that where it's, like, like almost gross out humour. That's what Bring It On feels like. Bring It On is very much of the American Pie generation where it's, like, Let's make jokes about sex because that makes us edgy. Like, and I think that there's a difference between edgy and irreverent, and the irreverent is this like slightly elevated version of it. And I think that's what sets Pitch Perfect apart from from maybe something like Bring It On, and makes it seem so much more advanced. I love Pitch Perfect and I love Bring It On in different ways and for different things, but like I'm more likely to walk away from Pitch Perfect feeling like I can, like I am a strong, independent woman who don't need no man. I also think to that point of you know how it makes you feel watching it bring it on is about cheerleaders who are in american high schools seen as the epitome of the cool group and like 
the struggle is that you know the amount of battles you see of the girl who wants to become the cheerleader and it's and even even not to go back to glee all the time but you know the cheerleaders shit on the choir that's mm-hmm. the, the hierarchy that's established whereas uh, in Pitch Perfect, the fact that it's an acapella group, it's already like they have to convince people that it's cool. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you've got a character like uh, Benji, who's the very nerdy um, amateur magician who wants to join the the men's vocal group, the Troublemakers. Treble Tones. Tre- Treble Tones or Troublemakers? Troublemakers. Treble Tones might be from Glee. Ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> Quite probably. All the singing puns. But yeah, he's a character that is very, very much not, he's not cool, quote, quote, but you root for him. Whereas I feel like if you had someone who was, did, you know, close up magic or whatever in a, in a movie, like Bring It On, they'd be the butt of the joke. Yeah. And I think it's it's a bit, it's a bit tweaked to say it, but Pitch Perfect seems to make more of an effort at being accepting, even though, yes, this is a group that is mainly white, skinny women, and they make comment on that within it. But I think that was another thing that made it different for me was the fact that it wasn't about being the coolest it was just about being the most talented yeah it's rooting for the it's it's rooting for the underdog and recognizing that the things that historically have always been rewarded aren't while they evolve skill like bring on you know cheerleading involves skill and talent but like things that make you nerdy also still involve a lot of skill everyone in hollywood always talks about how they were the weird theater kids and that they saw one film that inspired them and like i think pitch Perfect is almost trying to be that film that inspires them. It's celebrating the weirdos, which I kind of love. It's Although celebrating, again, it's celebrating finding your tribe and friendship as well. Yeah, and I not think... in that, not in that like sorority way, which is very yeah. um, endemic of American uh, college culture. It's you know you have it's, it's sisterhood, but not like oh my god, go to the most popular one or the coolest one again. It's it's just like yeah, these are the people that are talented and weird, and they accept you for being weird their whole point is that they were the best by doing like the original Bellas were the best by doing these very twee basic like girly girl stuff and the plot of the film is you need to embrace your individuality and embrace the weirdness like don't all dress the same don't all be don't hold yourself to someone else's standard of what you think it should be do what feels right and good and natural to you so that you are having fun that for me that's why my favorite scene is the bit where they they start singing the Bruno Mars just the way you are bit where they're all like finding their little sound and stuff like I love that scene because it's it's very much like pick a song any song don't care what it is Bruno Mars okay we'll just do it fine (laughs) we'll go with it and like they they explore their individuality which I really appreciate and don't tear each other down they build each other up in that moment do you think this is a movie that's going to age well because it's very tries to make a big deal about including more up-to-date music. I feel like you're going to watch this back in 10 years and just be like, oh, do you remember Bruno Mars? I kind of already think it maybe hasn't aged as well as it could have. Mm. I think in each iteration of the film, there are some easy kind of gross-feeling jokes. Um, the first one is predominantly around Faemi, although the the entire premise of the second film is based on the fact that fat amy accidentally reveals herself like that she and flashes that they, are sh- That's- <laughs> that they are shunned there's that and then but then also there is a character in the second one whose entire identity is a stereotype which is being a latinx woman it, well not even just a latinx woman an immigrant 
in in one way or another and you know heavily implied illegal well she That's... stands up in the circle and goes oh at the end of this i'm probably going to be deported and die on a boat yeah what and it's like <laughs> i you know that like, doesn't age well with with both fat amy and that character as well i feel like the scent the idea was to make that satirical point but i don't think it landed in the same way i think we've talked about like sometimes we feel that way with um tina fey's works and kimmy schmidt and in mean girls like a point was trying to be made it didn't land it got lost in translation and it kind of ended up making them the butt of the joke so i already feel like it's not necessarily aging the best i still think it's going to be enjoyable like I still think people are going to enjoy it and I still think people are going to look to it to be like that was an enjoyable piece of art but I don't think that I've I you know I I very seriously doubt that anyone under the age of 25 is watching it now and thinking this is for me <laughs> gee whiz how inclusive do you on a slightly more light-hearted note should we say do you have a favorite character or and do you have a favorite one of the three films I really enjoy The Whispering Woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. In the audition where she's like, I was born with gills. And then she does like a weird (laughs) pushy face. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's when they're in the van and they go, and she goes, I ate my twin in the womb. And the other guy goes, that's adorable. And you're like, (laughs) amazing. Um, Her name is Lily. Lily, Lily okay. that's it, of course. And I really hope that a lot of her lines are just like her just ad-libbing and like <laughs> no one ever knows exactly what they're going to get with her. I, I just, I would love that. I do get the impression with this film and I, like, I, don't, I haven't looked enough into it to know, but there are certain scenes I'm like, this is, this is improv. This yeah. is not. Well, apparently Rebel Wilson, impro- uh, Rebel Wilson improvised most of her lines, apparently. So you're saying Lily because of her weird asides, which... Yeah, I just love them because they're so, like, not related to anything that is happening and are just so obscure that it's just my sense of humour is obscure side notes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kim, do you have a favourite? I don't know if I have a favourite because every time I think, oh, no, no, like, Becca's definitely my favourite. I'm like, no, but... I really like Chloe and then I'm like no I do really like Aubrey and I I just enjoy all the dynamics like there's not a lot of dead wood no I think that's I think that's the point like it literally would depend on the day that I'm watching it even sorry. the characters that are specifically filler characters sorry they just make that joke out of that don't they there's yeah, two that only ever have, oh like, god that's two so, lines that's one it's of like, my who are you jokes. who are you yeah. <laughs> the like moment when they the both go year. I have to say, I have a big, I have a soft spot for Aubrey, um, who's the type A skinny thing. A, because I really love Anna Camp. Like, I have a real soft spot for her. I think she's a really good actress, but also because I'm type A as fuck. And I just, like, I just appreciate, you know, someone who's unashamedly ball-bustingly organised. I love the thing that was, like, oh, her lines. I'm a bit lame. She's a bit lame, and I'm also a bit lame. (laughs) If at first you don't succeed pack your bags <laughs> yeah, I know I do love those little asides that she says her dad yeah. gives her like. yeah. <laughs> she's good and I could for the record I could see you um running a mili- uh, running a corporate retreat with military precision I that's probably my calling <laughs> career goals what about you Sam I think I'm going to say my... F- I do like them all. I do think that, like we've said, there isn't a lot of Deadwood and all of them have some really great lines and some great moments. 
but I think my favourite is actually one of the boys. Bad feminist, I know. But it's Boomer. I really oh, like really? Boomer. Wow. Yeah, because he's such a dick. <laughs> he is such a dick. I think it's because where he has He's his, more like, of the... a dick in the first one. He is more of yeah, a dick. Yeah, I didn't in the first I didn't one. like him as much as that, but I also just really like um Adam Adam Devine, Adam Devine, I don't know how you say his his surname. I think I just really enjoy his redemption arc kind of with Fat Amy in the second film where when she comes across the lake singing uh, We Belong by Pat Benatar and then he's just like, no, I'm not going to sing that. No, 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 no. And then he's like, close your eyes and try to sleep now. Also because he's not, if he were a traditionally good looking man, you know, like one of your leading men, like if, if he was a Channing Tatum or if he was a, I don't know. I was about to go that guy from She's the Man. That's Channing Tatum again. Um <laughs> Basically, Channing Tatum. I don't even think Channing Tatum. Charming Potato. Anyway, Charming Potato or one of those, uh, Chris Chris Pratt or whoever. Chris Hemsworth. Or no, the one that's in Not Another Teen Movie. The other one, the other Chris. Chris Evans. Chris Evans. Evans. Just all all the sexy men. Just if he was a Hollywood Chris. I don't think that character would work, but because he's a fairly average looking person, yeah, he's fine. With a great voice. With a great voice. It just. I just really enjoy that he's so arrogant and it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, ain't that great though? You're going to be John Mayer's backup yeah. singer and you have your own range of sports sandals. Also, yeah, so yeah no, Boomer partakes, Boomer and Fat Amy partake of one of my favourite lines, which is the, like, I'm thinking you and me, like, maybe we should try it out. And she goes, mm, sometimes I think of, I'm going to try Christmas mess and then I think, mm, better not. And I'm like, better yeah. Not. yeah. <laughs> and the great, great line. She, I think I like I really in, I enjoy Fat Amy's character and what Rebel Wilson does with it, but I don't think it can ever be my favourite just because I feel like relying on fat as a humorous Joke. thing is just yeah. uh, question mark. Even if it's coming from that person or is their suggestion, I just yeah. Anyway, quite a lot of my favourite lines actually do come from her, um, and one of them is it's in the first one when they're in the the first rehearsal session and they've after the party and they realize that two of the bellas have slept with the troublemakers and they kick them out aubrey's like she allowed herself to be penetrated and then just Amy goes like not a good enough reason, <laughs> not to, good use enough the reason to use the word penetrate <laughs> <laughs> i think this one and, is like i think i think she's my favorite actor because her comedy timing is yeah. just perfect like she yeah. is but you're right, Like as a character, it's hard to get on board with that kind of let's laugh at someone's weight um, as the butt of the joke. But as yeah, as a comedy actor, she is my favourite out of all of them. Yeah, I think some of the the, the biggest laugh out loud moments come from her, definitely. Uh-huh. But, but the, the, they have to come from her, not at her expense. I think that's the point. Okay, so we're going to take a short break in a moment. But before we go, shall we... How's everyone finding their wine? What's going on? What's what's your mouth saying? I have had all of a glass and a half. Oh, shit. It is getting less bleachy, peachy citrus. Um, Because it's bleaching your entire mouth and now you can't taste it? Yeah. I have no taste buds left. This is it. This is how I spend the rest of my life. Yes, yeah, it's not fine. It, it's it's just, it's there. <laughs> high praise, high praise. Mine's fine. It's It's got a slightly, like, bitter or sour, like, side taste. You know, I've told before, like, sometimes when you drink a really good red wine, you get that lovely butter, buttery on uh, on the sides of your tongue. and Buttery biscuit base, yeah. 
Like this doesn't have that. Sometimes when you take a sip of it, you get a very slight bitter or soury aftertaste, almost like you've licked a penny. Ooh. Like not bloody, not coppery, but just like that kind, like slightly metallic. It's not bad. Like it's not prevalent and it's not. Are you sure you're not drinking blood? (laughs) (laughs) Tastes like iron. (laughs) Oh shit. No, this is my, um, this is my blood wine. Sorry. (laughs) It's still good. It's just an interesting, like, I don't know whether it's my taste buds today or if it's just that the wine itself should, like, it's the kind of thing that you should have a glass and then and share it between people and then open a fresh bottle so that you're not drinking an entire bottle slowly to yourself. Like, it shouldn't be left to rest and oxidise, maybe. I don't, I wouldn't want you to share that with me, please. (laughs) What about you, Sam? Uh, Yeah, it's, I will not be having this again. It's it's got that like you were saying Kim like the edge of the tongue thing I'm definitely getting that with this that kind of almost the edge of my tongue feels irritated because it's like "Eh, eh, oh that's not pleasant Um, at all that's not pleasant so so far considering I was fully expecting this to not be a good wine that much is living up to expectations so fuck you New South Wales and your Shiraz anyway should we go for a break and because I have to say it every episode. Maybe have a wee. Maybe have a wee. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Who knows what we do? Maybe anyone want to come around and do some meth? Think about that. Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe. Better not. <laughs> Penetrating meth. So we're back from our break, ready to talk some more about Pitch Perfect. So Pitch Perfect is a franchise that has been called in various reviews and by various people. Don't ask me to cite them because I don't know them off the top of my head, but we'll put them in the show notes as a feminist movie or as a feminist series of movies. What what do we think about that as a statement? Do we agree? (laughs) I think that... We can say that it's a feminist movie, but we would be ignorant and blind to not point out the fact that it's is white feminism at its mm. finest. And we say this as, you know, as we often say, you know, three white women. It's definitely not without flaws. It's definitely white feminism. It almost, I feel like there are points in, in it where it pats itself on the back for its depiction of women at college. It, it seems a bit there's something about it that just seems a bit self-congratulatory like oh look we've got this singing group and we included a black lesbian and this kind of thing and it's just mm, i don't know it pats itself on the back for being either inclusive or like progressive but then you're kind of like well it's that classic thing where none of that is front and center and all of it is with a point like there are 13 arrows pointing to look at this person that we included and that therefore alienates instead of making it what it should be which is a multifaceted group with a myriad of different stories and interests and histories and proclivities it's here's 12 white women and one black (coughs) because let's let's just get let's just get all our tokenism in there in one fell swoop and it's it's a real it's a real problem with the film like you know we've gone on record to say that we enjoy the film but you can enjoy something and still criticize it and you can not be blind to its flaws. This, this film series has flaws and the feminism is surface level. The feminism is that there are women in it and they win a lot of the time. And the characters are that, that have their story shown as part of the plot are white women, you know, white straight women, 
white straight women. So you have the story, you know, you have Becca and her relationship with Jesse and her dad and her struggle with her career. And you have uh, in the third film, it's very much centered around um, Fat Amy and her relationship with her dad. It's not that anyone's stories are any more or less important, but there is a reason why these films choose the the stories that we've all seen before. And it's and it does all it serves is to sideline the characters whilst patting yourself on the back for including them in the first place, which is irritating. Something that, yeah, it reminds me of in Glee, they make this, I keep going back to Glee, I know, and I'm sorry, but they make this no, whole but point Glee, about... Glee walks so that Pitch Perfect could run. It's, it's, they are related. But there's, there's all those comments there about like, this is this choir and how it has different representation. And there's that, there's that one scene in which Sue Sylvester, I think it's in either the first or second season, basically goes in and goes, um, she selects all the non-white characters to form their own super choir. And she's just like, Asian, other Asian, boobs. And like, just calls out these characteristics. Yeah, Asian, tall Asian. It's like Asian, tall, tall Asian. Asian. Yeah. And it's it's done in this way that's so obviously being like, oh, look, isn't it? Look for how well you think you've done because you've got all these characters from different backgrounds and nationalities and ethnicities and all this kind of thing rather than this which doesn't even really touch on it and I think if it were to touch on it if they did it they'd have to make a joke out of it so they just don't do it I think they do call it out at one point but again it in a self-fulfilling prophecy is done exactly that way like the treatment of the one black character who also happens to be a lesbian is really quite reductive throughout the series and a lot of played by Esther Dean yeah a lot of her scenes are like she's portrayed in this kind of like predatory or ghetto way and it's like it just reduces so much into one character you know we spoke about aging well at the beginning and I don't think it's necessarily just the songs it is this kind of lack of diversity and understanding. I think to an extent it is a feminist film because in 2012, the kind of rise of women-led narrative was kind of only just, at least for our generation and our understanding of film, was kind of like up on the rise. And to have women at the forefront of the story where they are three-dimensional can be gross can be multifaceted, can be interesting, can be funny, can be like all all the things that make us human. I think so, yes, it is feminist, but it does have its flaws. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Like there is context and that it it is still feminist in spite of everything. There's a difference between white feminism and surface level feminism. Like there are flaws unrelated to race. If we're talking about feminism through a scope of telling the stories of all women, which I think when you're talking about feminism, you should be considering all women all the time. Um, there's no... Like, everyone, all of the main characters are able-bodied. I think the only character that I can think of, off the top, and, and neurotypical, but the only character that I can think of off the top of my head that displays any kind of different ability, disability is in the second film is David Cross's character where they go to the mansion to do the like the sing off and he's got a walking stick that's mm. it um oh no no there's a second one where in the in the first film in the activities fair or the 
society's fair or whatever, Becca, is in front of a booth called DJs and Fat Amy comes along and is like, DJs, oh, deaf Jews. Oh that's, God, yeah. Yeah. That's so awful. And then, she, so it goes, yeah, so these guys say shalom and then Fat Amy goes, that's not a real word, but keep trying. Oh. This is this isn't this is, these are these are men that are being depicted on screen, but I think this this speaks to that uh, you know ability thing. Or disability. And that does not age well. Ask. And That's... and then she and then she follows it up with, "No, I was in a production of Fiddler in Australia. Me and a bunch of Aboriginals. It was super Jewish. Oh, oh. It's so awful. I oh. honestly have blacked oh. that from my mind." <laughs> <laughs> and it's awful. That's not okay. It's not okay. There's no there's there's no explaining that way. It's not cool. Fucking hell. So is that. And also there's no, you know, there's no trans depiction. There's no um everyone in it is is cis from the way they discuss they it. They are presented. I mean, they are yeah. presented as cis. Although, you know, some as we've said before, someone's transness should not be their storyline necessarily. No. You can't be a champion of people who are who are not traditionally forefronted without thinking of what that means across all different groups. But I think also, like, that statement to an extent from what we're saying could be quite hypocritical because, you know, we're saying that we don't think that, say, you know, a trans woman, that should be the key facet to their storyline the fact that they are trans similarly I don't think that someone who is a disabled person or someone that is you know differently abled it shouldn't be like the key thing within their storyline so Mm. if we're talking about making it about them you know being championed then that is making it the key thing no, about their storyline. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's that's not what I meant. What I meant is that, like, there is no one in this, in the main storyline that is include like, that is inclusive of someone who's able-bodied. And it's interesting that that wouldn't even be a subtle overcoming of anything. Like, part of us, part of the wider storyline does not include any of that. I completely get it because we're, we're treading this line here when we're discussing it between tokenism and, and representation on screen against storylines revolving around someone's particularly um, protected characteristic struggle. So, but I'm if you think about this story, if um, Becca, if her character had been differently abled or had been a different race, and yet the main arc for that character was that they broke down the barriers they had about making friends and became accepted into this group of of, of women and then went on to win a competition. Yes, the experiences probably would have been different in the way that story was told, but the ultimate story is still about that group acceptance and and, and the ability and the, and, or the talent and that competition. Mm. So do you, I think that's the more what I'm thinking of. F- like, exactly. They, they chose to go for, oh, pretty white loner. Over anyone they else they could have like the focus else. the focus of the art could have remained the same and it's the same it's the same point that we've made about other tv shows and other films is that the focus of the arc if the casting call was anyone why did they choose like a white pretty person and the typically abled person if the thing that they still have to overcome is being a closed-off person finding it difficult to make friends finding it difficult to be ambitious 
which is all the things that Becca struggles with in the film. If that's still the core, yeah, if that's still the core point of the character, that could as easily be played by anyone differently abled. I feel like any character in this film could have been played by someone differently abled without fundamentally having to change the character or change the arc of their plot. And it would have been inclusivity without exploitation. That's the problem that Hollywood and we as feminists face is that the default is if it's not explicit, we don't include it. But you can't, you they can't separate been people's different experiences from, from their stories and from their life. And so had they just thrown in a character, I'm saying thrown in very, very in a very blasé way here, but like if they'd gone, you know what, we're going to put another character in the choir, they're going to be someone with cerebral palsy, for, for an example... Do you not think like I feel like that would have become a joke? I think I think we're all making the same point here, which is that like we're not interested in tokenism and we're not interested in we're not interested in seeing um, someone of a in anyone who is not white and straight and able bodied um, and young and, and able bodied cis and, and young. We're not interested yeah. in anyone other than that being made the butt of a joke or being made a token. What we are interested in seeing is that anyone other than that being put into a central role without it being about how they are different. You know, it's a chicken and egg thing. I think there are less people that feel like they can put themselves up for auditions. There's less people that are being trained in acting. There's like, in terms of diversity across the whole, like in Hollywood, in the UK, in every single country. So we just need to make those opportunities available for every single person. And that's what feminism is. Equality. Well, exactly. So speaking of things that are fairly typical of female-led blockbuster films where you know most of the characters are white most of the characters are straight most blah, 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 blah. Um, there's a definite other trope with female focused stories whether they are comedy or not and that is this idea of female friendship and female friendship as something that at some point becomes destructive whether or not they then make up at the end or not is this idea of, of pitting women against each other and what do you think that what do you think Pitch Perfect does with that idea? Do you think it counteracts that? Do you think it makes? Do you think it changes that conversation? Do you think it, there's an element of it sticking within the trope? What do you reckon? I think straight away the first film is definitely representing someone coming in that is against the grain of the tribe, like the usual kind of person that may be welcomed without question, into their group of friends or or group. There's a comedy moment where that woman comes for the audition. She's like, oh, I love, like, cuticles and... Cuticle care and e-network. Yeah, and and she's so, like, typical of what they would usually, like, their group... And they actually... they sit up and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. And and then she like starts singing a bit like, I don't know, like quite, like, like yeah. quite intense. Um, yeah. So and I think they make a comment on that almost. It's quite interesting that obviously there's this character that is just like so reluctant to allow anyone that would break the mold into their circle of friends. And as soon as that happens, they have to fight like Anna is it Anne? no what's her name becca has to Becca-ia. yeah has to fight really really hard to kind of almost prove her worth because she doesn't represent what the typical norm of that group is it's just really interesting that regardless of how kind of breaking the mold this film is meant to be 
it is still kind of following that same pattern. And I don't necessarily always think it is for kind of a statement or a comedy thing. So this this trope that female relationships involve some kind of massive bitchiness and then either they're all going to be all right at the end or not. That's every film, male or female. Goodwill Hunting, they have a fight. It's about their friendship. The Hangover, they all have a massive fight. Um, super bad. they have a fight about their friendship. Sorry, I just want to bring up the difference here is that what I'm hearing is the word conflict, not the word bitchiness. I think those are two different. But that's, but I mean, that was going to be my point is that the, there's nothing different in a lot of these plots. Conflict can be good and conflict can be constructive because if you have conflict, then you uh, explore new avenues and you reach compromise. Um, it's the whole point of a story arc as well. Like you need yes. conflict to make a story happen. Yeah. In male-led films... It's called conflict and it's called plot development and it's called growth and it's called being a better person and exploring friendship. In ma- in female-led films, it's called bitchiness. And it's the exact same thing that is in real world applied to male and female friendships. But I have longer lasting friendships with my female friends despite any quote-unquote conflict or bitchiness or whatever you want to call it. It is the classic dichotomy of the language that the the world uses for something to to put down women and elevate men in exactly the same situation. And that pisses me off. So, yes, this film technically falls into the bitchy friendship trope, but fuck that. It's valid, useful, constructive, necessary conflict, more meaningful more significant, more helpful, in my opinion, than the Hangover franchise. Thank you very much. (laughs) Full stop. Mic drop. Yeah, no, I completely agree about that distinction between conflict and bitchiness within this film, certainly, because, yes, the whole point of any story is that you need conflict, as you said, Alex, to drive the plot forward, because no one wants to watch people get together, have great time, endless, great, wonderful, because it's fucking dull and no one literally broke, watched no that film it was dull as fuck yeah exactly <laughs> you know it's it's not it's not what you need so you need some bite you need some clashing but i think when people talk about bitchiness in films when i think about other representations is is, is this idea of women tearing other women down for the sake of it or for reasons unrelated to the actual core of the conflict so you know in pitch perfect 2 that like becca gets this internship but she doesn't tell the rest of the group about it because she's worried about what it's going to do to chloe because her whole life and investment is in this group but the conflict there is not oh my god i can't believe you've done this it's hurt me so much personally therefore i'm going to sabotage you and malign you and do this thing that which is what i think a lot of people think of when they think of bitchy female friendships of like women trying to undermine each other it was more like why didn't you tell me about this this was important so i don't feel this i don't feel this does fill in fill in the bitchy trope it, it falls in friendship has pitfalls friendship has high points but i think that's my point is that the i think that if we re-examined a lot of the bitchy trope films, that they would also fall under that category. You know what is a bitchy film? Cruel Intentions. Oh, yeah. Great film. Love that film. So, yeah, I think there are moments of bitchiness within Pitch Perfect, but I wouldn't ever say it's a 
an accurate demonstration of this trope of female bitchy friendships. So to round off the show tonight before we go to our ratings um, and our feelings on the wine and the film, do any of you have a favourite song from any of the three films? By any of you, it's implying there's like nine of you. Do either of you have a favourite song? <laughs> just gonna, just gonna, just gonna bring up the uh, Pitch Perfect Spotify playlist. Yeah, okay, me too. Good, me too. Good, That's good. what I'm doing. Uh, I don't have a one favourite. There's definitely various songs from this soundtrack that just loop through our mind, and most of them are the like. The, I think they call it. Uh, no, they don't call it a sing-off. I can't remember riff, what they call it, but the ones riff off, riff off. That's it. They are the best where, ones. Yeah, where they have various vocal groups singing against each other, or um, you you start a song and then someone has to cut in as long as the next lyric leads on from what you've said. Um, and I like the two from the first two films particularly. The third one is also is it, it's quite good, but I think the second riff off might be my favourite, mainly because it's a shit show. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I like the riff-offs. I originally used to love the cups moment <laughs> with, like, Anna Kendrick. Like, just, I feel like that that's so iconic. That's kind of like, I'm so cool. And also, I know my shit. And Do you know that song from the 1920s? Is it? Jeez. I think that was a really cool moment. It was just kind of like, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to fit the mould of you guys but yet still be really good at what she's trying to prove she's good at my second one is i don't actually remember what the song is and that's really bad but it was like it was the germans like when they were they the first time you see them or yes the first time you see them that was a muse song paranoia uprising that's it it. because i remember thinking oh my god this is fucking amazing this is so good and i couldn't remember what the song was but yes that one the muse one agreed that's very 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 good kim i think that mine is not necessarily because I think it's the best performance, but because I enjoy the moment, which is party in the USA. <laughs> where where they're in the they're in, Yeah, they're in the van and they're trying to get they're trying to get Becca to like get on board and enjoy it and enjoy this uncool song. And it just is for me it's everything. It's 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 one of the most authentic moments of the entire thing because you don't need to be an a cappella group to understand that moment when all your friends are singing that really fucking annoying song that you 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 don't like but you, you kind of do like and you're too cool to like but you know that you actually do like it and you definitely know all the words but you don't want them to know that you know all the words but you do know all the words and then you start singing it because you just fucking have fun and that for me is it's one of my favorite moments and i think that's why it's my favorite song it's not the best performance it's not the one that i listen to a lot but it's moment in time in the film that i remember a lot and so that's my favorite there's a really good point in that where like she's just sat there not singing and everyone else kind of is picking up the song and going with it and then she just turns around and they're all looking at her singing aggressively at her and she just goes oh jesus christ (laughs) i really like that bit for me for me it's the uh the really emotional heart clutch when she starts singing i put my hands up playing my song that moment is great yeah yeah that's a good one so you want to give us a rendition of anything i really enjoy the start of the second riff off where it's flula 
singing and he's like she had dumps like a truck 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 oh yeah like hot, 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 <laughs> on that long let, let me see that song, song. <laughs> The riff-offs is a really good point because the no diggity moment is... No diggity is great. Embarrassing, but excellent. But also, like, the whole part of that riff-off where they're talking, that you know, they're singing the songs about sex. And uh, and they do the, the Rihanna bit, like, I may be bad, but I'm perfectly good. That bit. You're welcome, Alex. I did that just for you. Uh, <laughs> I more Rihanna. Like... Kim sing more Rihanna. Kim sing more Rihanna. <laughs> I am the last person that should sing Rihanna. No, no, no. Come on. Come on. Come on. I like it, like it, like it. <laughs> but what I like what about the rip-offs is the uh, the chance that you get to see the singing ability of the not central characters. So I guess that brings us to the end of the show this week. But before we go, we have some wine and a couple of films to rate before we leave. So who wants to kick off with their wine? Kim, you're looking at your um, fingering, whatever it was called. Finca. Finca Las Moras. Finca Las Moras. Go on, give us give us your give us your wine rating for that one. You know what? It's a good one. It's it's just fine. Like it's not. I always struggle because I don't remember what I rated previous wines when I say that it's fine. But like it feels like a good solid like three, three point five. I wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I enjoy this wine and I would buy this wine and it would be a good wine to buy if you were going to a dinner party with someone you didn't necessarily know that well and wanted to impress them slightly by buying them a nine pound wine rather than a five pound wine. Um so I'm going to go with a three to be cautious because I don't remember what else I've rated. Like it's not astounding or anything, but it's, it's good. Cool. So three or 3.5. I'm going with three, three for that, please. Thank you. Three, three. Great. Albert, how about your so cola? Oh, so, so guys, it's going to be like a 1.5. As high as that. I thought you were going to go lower. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I've now finished the bottle makes me think that it deserves wow. the extra 0.5. But it's also like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, 1.5. It got, the 0.5 happens over time. The 1 happens when you first drink it. So it's a grower, not a shower, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Don't buy this. Don't buy this. It was reduced to £7. It was meant to be like £9.50 or something. Oh, fuck off. No. Yeah. yeah, no, bullshit. Don't buy it. One, 1. 1.5. Fair. And mine was the uh, the Whistling Duck Shiraz. And in my opinion, the Whistling Duck can go whistling fuck itself. So <laughs> it's getting a 1.5. 1. 1.5 for me. It was, I'm in no hurry to buy this again. I was under no illusions that this was going to be great. Twerent great. But, you know, if you're looking for a decent second or third bottle of the night, maybe this is your one if you don't want to fork out too much money. It was £9. That's, um, I feel like that's a lot for a third bottle. Yeah, but considering how much I've spent recently. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I mean, for me, the frame For me, third bottle is like £3.75, so... <laughs> Yeah, fair point. But then this is the cheapest that the shop I bought it from does. This is the cheapest one. And now I know why. Finally, 
there are three Pitch Perfect films, but we haven't talked about each of them like on their own. So I'd be interested to hear what your rating of them as a franchise is out of five grapes. Alex, I'm going to come to you first. Oh, pressure. Mm. Um, I was battling between a four and a 3.5 because I feel like if you'd asked me in 2012 when it first came out, I would have given it a 4, 4.5 straight off. But I think, you know, all the points that we've spoken about and our thinking as people at the moment and and just more education and understanding, it makes me want to kind of strip it back a little bit because everyone deserves to be seen. Oh, I really wish we could give 0.75. Nope. I know, I know. Out the start. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it a four. Because it is dear to my heart. It is something that I have watched time and time again. Yes, we can pick holes in it. And I think that's important because actually if something inspires you, it allows you to pick holes in it. So mm. That's um, a really good point. Yeah. 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 Very good point. So I'm going to give it a four. Four. Four grapes for Pitch Perfect from Alex. Kim, you're staring into the distance like uh, a winsome romantic painting. What are you thinking? I mean, that's just my natural state because I am a winsome romantic painting. You can read about it in my thesis. Um, in your feces? Feces? <laughs> <laughs> I think, for me, my relationship with Pitch Perfect the first versus Pitch Perfect the franchise is quite different. And for all the reasons that Alex said, like, I think that she makes a really good point about, you know, loving something and being able to be critical about it. For me, I think that the franchise itself is around a 3.5. But, and if there is a Pitch Perfect 4, which is rumoured, then um, I think that they will, I believe that they will take that on, given the, the culture of the world that we're living in and the things and the criticisms that they've received. I would hope, anyway. Pitch Perfect the first for the dear to my heart reasons is a four. And for me, I think again, it's it's a franchise of female-led story that depicted female female friendship in a way that was valuable to me. I don't know if that's the word I want to say, but like it was important and it wasn't just like a like a throwaway thing it was really nice to see these women supporting each other and working together and doing this kind of thing so for me I thought that was really really good um in a way that hadn't just been skimmed over by Hollywood before so I thought that was good and I think it had a level of irony and humor that wasn't really allowed to exist in female comedy until quite recently or at least not until not in mainstream female comedy for me it was a really nice depiction of female friendship and female comedy in a way that was clever and smart um clever and smart you know who doesn't love a synonym on this show but I went into it expecting it to be very cheesy which is not to say I was expecting it to be bad because I love cheesy and I came out of it going hmm actually there was more to that than I expected and it kept me watching the next two films so I am going to go with a tentative four, a shy four, I think. 
I went with the shy four as well. A shy so. four, like you say, Alex, if there was a 3.75, I'd be there. But I think it's better than what I've said about a 3.5 in other episodes of the show. So, got to be a four for me. Oh. Good times. And it has songing in it, and I like songing. <laughs> so I put my hands up to play in my song. I don't know that song. Really. <laughs> and the Jay-Z song was on. And the Jay-Z, and the Jay-Z song, was, song on. was on. So that brings us to the end of the show this week. But don't forget, if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Great Culture Podcast. We're on Twitter at Great Culture Pod. Or you can go to our website and check out our show notes. And that is www.greatculturepodcast.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the show and you're listening on uh, Apple Podcasts or an Apple device, don't forget to give us a rating out of five and uh, leave us a review, perhaps, because we are needy bitches and we love to know what you think. And remember, we will be back in two weeks' time for a brand new episode of feminism, wine, and a lot of drunken slurring. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.